okay. Let's open a word of prayer. Father, we give you so much thanks, Lord. What a wonderful blessing that you are to us. What a wonderful blessing you are to our lives individually. How much, dear Lord, we can rejoice in the knowledge of who you are. To know, dear Lord, that the word of God has foretold of all that you have done and your coming, dear Lord, your saving grace. The wonderful news, dear Lord, to be able to shed abroad to all people. And that that word, dear Father, is given to us, dear Lord, that we have that privilege to be able to share with all people, that we can rejoice together, dear Father, in the knowledge of it. We just give you thanks. Pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me, dear Father, as I share your word to my brethren. And that you would be with them, dear Lord, as they not only hear it, dear Father, but retain those things, dear Lord, that are good. That they would come to a greater knowledge of who you are and that they would appreciate the saving grace that you have given to each one. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We, um, we've got a four-part series that we're doing for December, and it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about him being found within the confines of this incredible book. Um, and especially at Christmas time, it's a great time to be able to share the truth of Christ to people. But it's, it's even better to be able to see so much of what the Bible has actually said about it and about who Christ is and what he's done. And the study this morning, our sermon this morning, is titled The Coming of Christ Foretold. And it's broken again in four parts. The foretelling of victory, the foretelling of a governor, the foretelling of one from everlasting, and the foretelling of the day. He comes. And, um, and it's a wonderful blessing to see it. Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And that's written for us in the gospel accounts, in the gospel of John. That's in the New Testament. But Christ is also quoted in the Psalms as saying this, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. In Psalm 40, verse 7. What incredible, the volume of the book. So we have right there, in the middle of the book and towards the end, Jesus himself actually speaking about his word. Turn your Bibles to Luke, chapter 24, if you've got them with you. And we'll see another account. An incredible account, because at this particular time in history... Jesus had already given his life. He'd already given his life as a sacrifice to all people. He had been a picture on that cross of the love of God for all people. He had been taken down. He had been placed in a tomb. He'd been there for three days already. And he had risen from the dead. And now we find him coming along a road to Emmaus. And it's found in Luke chapter 24. Sorry, I didn't tell you. Luke 24. 24, and we're going to be reading from verse 13. And a couple of disciples, it relates this account. And it says, Behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. Which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were 
with us went to the sepulchre and found it, even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So we see that Christ is right through the scriptures. It's right through the Bible and it's without contradiction. It's a unified message. It's a unified account of who Jesus is, why he came, what his character is. And he's taken them all through the scriptures. There are so many appellations of Christ, and I've, and I've put some of those in your bulletin this morning, that you'd be able to see clearly that right, there's nowhere you can go in the Bible where there is not something foretold of Christ. There's something in there, whether it's a title, and that's just with regards to his name, not just his, his deeds. And we can see all those things found in there. This first point, the foretelling of victory, the first place that we find a reference to Christ is in that passage that Brother Kess read for us this morning. Um, and it's worth, worth going there, but we're not going to be staying there very long. So, and it's only verse 15 that I want you to consider. And it says this, and it says, And I will put enmity, so it's chapter 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The context of our passage is none other than the fall of man itself. Right at that time, would it surprise you then that right at the time of man's deepest, darkest time, the fall, we have a picture of victory already alluded to by God himself. That's incredible. The gospel first told by God immediately after the fall. Immediately after the fall. Now, when you look at this particular passage, it's difficult to see and understand because there's a bit of obscurity in there. We can't really make a lot of sense of it if it was there on its own. So even at that particular time, it would have been difficult to sort of render, what, what does this actually mean? And um, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. It's not until later on when we've got the New Testament, when we've got later accounts, that we can actually reflect back and look at it and say, that's Christ. He is the seed. He is the seed. And Paul speaks about it as well. He says, uh, he speaks about the seed spoken of in the Old Testament. He says, which is not of many. He doesn't say seeds as of many, but as of one. And that seed is Christ. So we've got this illusion going back, right back to chapter 3. And do you know what? When you go through and you, you look for the prophecies concerning Christ... All of them refer back to this as the very first account. So, but at this time, when you're looking at this verse by itself, I can understand that it looks a little bit obscure. How can you know that that's talking about Jesus Christ? We don't understand it until we've got the further revelation as the Word of God is being written and given to us. But there are a few things that we can see. At this time, we, we recognise some things here. We see that Adam... Um, is the one who has taken of the fruit that he willfully accepted from his wife and who, being deceived by the servant, also took and she ate. And we see God walking in the cool of the day. He found Adam hiding from him and quickly stated that which he also understood to be true. And he said this in verse 11. He said, Who told you, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shalt not eat? And at that, for that accusation, Adam found a ready excuse in his wife. And we've laughed about that time and again, but he finds that excuse in his wife. But he also has a little bit of a backhanded approach, even of God, when he says this, and he says, The man said, in verse 12, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So Adam just to make sure he underpins that he's not at fault here, not only blames the woman, but also says, hey, well, you know, I mean, you gave me her, and then she did this, and I did it, you know. And that's really, really sad, and, um, and it's a sad time, but it's, it's amazing how just one, one little passage like that says so much. 
But God quickly turns his attention to Eve. And then he brings the first judgment rightfully placed on the serpent, the devil and Satan. And that's who he's referred to. These efforts in affecting the actual fall of mankind. Um, incredibly, God doesn't ask for him, of him, an explanation. As he did with Adam and as he did with Eve. But he goes straight to judgment in verse 14. He says, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. And all cattle simply means all animals, all the beasts of the field. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And then he launches into this verse that we're looking at. And I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So again, difficult to see what this seed relates to. But yet we do discover a few things. Number one, the seed is a man. The seed is a man. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. His heel. So we recognise that this is a man, a male. Some, an individual, a man. And the second thing that we see, that the serpent, also known as Satan... He and the serpent are perpetual enemies for all generations. And it says there, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. So we see that between the seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and Satan's seed, which is all those that are children from the devil, there will be enmity. There will be enemies one to another. But thirdly, we know that this man will prevail against the devil and deliver all fallen man with creation. He says, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So speaking, Satan's going to be bruising the heel, but Christ will bruise the head. Romans 16.20 Paul says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Be with you all. Amen. What's really interesting about this is that when God was speaking to, um, to the serpent, he was obviously speaking of a time yet future. Here we have Paul, 2,000 years removed from that event in the garden, also speaking about that same event, yet future. Yet future. Here we are now, almost 2,000 years removed from Paul, and we are still looking forward to that event, yet future. What event? That event where... God will bruise Satan. And it means basically destroy him. When he will destroy Satan. So we are still looking forward to that. That will happen. But, you know, it's incredible. Right at this time of the fall, God is already pronouncing a victory. He didn't allow man to wallow in self-pity simply because he had sinned. You know, he didn't allow him to wallow that way. But he told him right from that point, there is going to be hope. We are going to be destroying Satan. I will destroy him in the future. So God preached the first gospel, the good news to fallen man, in a world populated by two people. In a world populated by two people. And what can this tell us? Well, it tells us that no matter the number that cover the globe, your value to Christ is so great that should you have been alone in this world, he would have even given his life for you. There were only two people in the world at that time when God pronounced a victory, when God gave hope. And should there have remained only two people in the world, Christ would have died to fulfil that promise that God had already made. How incredible is that? And this is the love that he has. And knowing that, how fast would you run into his arms? You know, Knowing that love that God has for us, how fast would we run into his arms? The second point is foretelling of a governor. Turn in your Bible here in Genesis. Turn forward to chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. We've got an account here from the first verse of, of Jacob now in Egypt. Jacob has come to the end of his life. He'd been given opportunity to see his son Joseph, who was now governor of all the land governor of all the land, who is now the ruler, second behind Pharaoh unto all people. And the vision that Joseph had of the sheaves bowing down to him, so was fulfilled in his brethren bowing down 
to Joseph. Now, Joseph at that time was only 17 years of age. 30 years have gone by. 30 years have gone by. And now he's a much older man. But here we have Jacob, now at the end of his life, at death. And he calls all his sons together and he says, and we'll we'll read these few verses in Genesis 49. And Jacob called his sons and he said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations, O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honour, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So neither Reuben the firstborn, nor Simeon the second, nor Levi the third, were given the rights of the firstborn. Reuben, simply because he defiled Jacob's bed, he took his concubine and laid with her. This is Jacob's concubine, not not his son's. He's entering into the sins of the people in Canaan who who Israel were going to take out and remove. This is a judgment upon God on Canaan. They were doing this sort of thing. And here we have Reuben entering into the same sin. He will not excel. Then we have that story with Simeon and Levi. Levi, you remember what happened. You remember how Shechem had taken Dinah, their sister, and had, he had lain with her and defiled her. And they were angry at this. And they deceived the nation. They deceived Shechem and all the brethren and all the people of the land. And they slew them. They killed them. Two men at a time where they were at their weakest point. The Judah. Judah, whose very name means praise, is he whom even his brethren will praise, and he from whom the Lord Jesus Christ and King David will come. This is Judah. But have a look at this interesting passage here in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. The the scepter. This is the right of government. This is the right of authority. Ultimately, the scepter belonging to Judah meant that he had the right and his tribe had the right to institute capital punishment. That was their right. That was their right. That was that scepter. And you'll note that the passage is prophetic, okay? Look what it says. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh. Who's, who's Shiloh? Well, if you have a look at those little appellations that we have in the uh, bulletin there, not now, but in the weeks to come, you'll see Shiloh, and that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah. The word literally means, he whose is the kingdom. He whose is the kingdom. So, Here we have Judah guarding and having that right of authority, that right of capital punishment, until the one whose is the kingdom comes to take possession. Now, this is really incredible here because I want you to think about the history. I want you to think about what we're talking about, the Bible being true and absolute. Because there's something that has occurred historically. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Because something had occurred in history that links up with this incredible event. 
Right up until this moment, Judah had the scepter. Up until this moment, historically, Judah had the right to capital punishment. But we're going to see in verse, these two verses, verse 29. So John chapter 18, verse 29. Have a look at this. It says, Pilate then went out unto them. Now, what's the, what's the, what's the context here? Where's, where's Pilate fit into this? Who's he speaking about here? He's going to be speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, yeah? Pilate only comes into the picture when Jesus Christ has been condemned to death at this particular time, right? Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? And they answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then Pilate said unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to what? To death. Well, hang on a second. It had been lawful in the past, hasn't it? It had been lawful in the past, but something had occurred. Historically, something had occurred. So for all these years, from the time of Jacob to the time of Christ, Judah had the scepter. Judah had the right to capital punishment. All those years, and we're speaking over well over a thousand years, I think it would have been about a good 1,600 years had gone by at this point. 1,600 years, Judah had the scepter. Judah had the right to capital punishment. All of a sudden here, they're saying that it's not lawful. This is the Pharisee, the rulers. Now, they can judge, but they didn't have the right to take a man's life. It was illegal for them to do so. What happened? After the death of Herod in 4 BC, Archelaus, who was the second son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great is that, is that man that actually built the fortress of Masada. Some of us have been there. Pretty exciting. He built the fortress of Masada. He was known as the Great Builder. He also built the extended version of the temple. We look at the temple of the Jews at that time, and it's known as the Herodian Temple. Herod's Temple was what he built. He was an incredible builder and quite a megalomaniac as well. So this is him. This is his second son. Had to be his second son because Herod killed his first son. It was said that it was safer to be a dog in the house of Herod than a family member. That's how violent this individual was and this is how crazy he was. But anyway, Archelaus, the second son of Herod the Great, had been placed over Judea by Caesar Augustus. He was removed in six, between 6 and 7 AD and replaced by a Roman procurator named Caponius. The legal power of the Sanhedrin, this is Judah's lawgiver, was immediately restricted to the right, and the right to capital punishment was lost. This transfer of power is mentioned by Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews. And I checked the reference and it's 100%. He mentions in that Antiquity of the Jews, he mentions both Jesus and his brother James. And he mentions the fact that it was unlawful for the Sanhedrin to be assembled without the permission of Rome. It's found in Book 20, Chapter 9. I checked the reference and it's 100% there. What he mentions in there, Josephus was talking about how... James, the brother of Christ, it was unlawful for the governor at the time to put him to death without the permission of Rome. Well, it's incredible to see that Jesus was born around the same time. The Roman procurator Caponius removed the rights of governing from Judah. How interesting is that? Now, there's an interesting reference that other people have made and I'll, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you this ahead of time, just in case you hear it, and you and you believe it to be hundred percent true. Um, I've listened to commentators that have referred to a something written in the Babylonian Talmud, and it says that um, that they were the Sanhedrin was all in an uproar when this law had changed. Now, this might have actually happened. This might have actually happened. Um, and they actually said, Woe unto us, woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, but Shiloh has not yet come. Now that may very well be true, because right at that time, we have the child Jesus that has been born. Now I say it might very well be true, because the references to the Babylonian Talmud, I've got a copy of the Babylonian Talmud, 
It's not in there. I've checked it right through with respect to, I've done a search because I've, I've got a digital copy. There's no mention of it. There is a mention of the scepter. There is a mention of this thing happening. But the reference is far, far, far too late, centuries too late, um, to be this one. And it's not this one. Uh, I then did a search on the internet to find out where this source was because I do like to check the original source. I don't. I try not to get into the habit of, of checking, of just looking at the secondary source. I like to look at the original one. Um, I think we've got a duty. I think we're bound by duty to make sure that we're checking these things before we preach on them and teach on them. But, um, but anyway, I couldn't find it. Um, there are other people that have looked for it. They couldn't find it. Matter of fact, Josh McDowell in his, in his um, uh, reference, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, quotes this. And he also quotes the secondary source, and he makes note that it's a secondary source, not a primary one. And he later comes back and says, yeah, we were definitely wrong, we shouldn't have had it in there because it's not found in any primary sources. So just be aware of that if you ever hear it on some teaching on the internet. Um, there is no reference to it anywhere. might have been there, and it could very well be true, but we don't have it. Just a little caution, all right? So be on your guard always. So the point is... That Christ is the governor of his kingdom. And his kingdom is his people. His people are all those who have called for him to forgive their rebellion and to govern their lives. The scepter had indeed passed from Judah and given to Shiloh. And it's been given to him because he came. Because he came. How I wished that they would have recognised this. They believed that the word of God was broken because Shiloh had not yet come. But he had come. But he had come. Third point, foretelling of the one from everlasting. Micah is the book that we're going to be looking at. It's a, it's a uh, minor prophet testimony. Um, you can start at the beginning of um, Matthew and work back. It's only a small book. If you get to Daniel, you've gone too far. It is between Habakkuk, Nahum, Micah. A simple short reference here found in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. It says, but in the last days, Micah chapter 3, Micah chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. Oh no, I got the wrong one, sorry, that was chapter 4. Chapter 5. Sorry. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us, and they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. There will be a place from which the ruler will come. This is a foretelling of this ruler. Who is this ruler? How is he described in the passage? Is he described in the passage? Is he described in the passage? It's an interesting question. Here it says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel. This is an ancient prophecy, a prophecy before the time of the New Testament, speaking about one that would come forth, that would yet come. He would come. So we know that there is a ruler coming. We know that already from Genesis chapter 49. We know that from so many other passages that there will be a ruler that's going to come. What's really interesting about this is that he's speaking about this ruler and it has a certain characteristic because now not only is he speaking about him that is yet to come forward, you can identify him by looking into the past. He says, who's going forth have been from old, from everlasting. So we'll know him, but he did not come from now, he came from then. We're speaking about a time yet future, about an individual who's come from the distant past. How distant is the past? From old, from everlasting. Everlasting is a word used right throughout the Bible. 
it usually speaks to us about everlasting life. That which lasts forever. Now here it's speaking about a time in the past. Of old. Of everlasting. Back then. Everlasting past. Hang on. This is strange. Who could this be? Who could come from old, from everlasting? We've got an interesting passage in, um, in the book of Hebrews where Paul in chapter 7 of Hebrews describes a man and he's describing an individual and he's obviously describing Jesus Christ. It's really clear from the context. He's referring to Christ because he likens him with Melchizedek. And this individual is a strange individual in the Bible. We don't really know who he is. There's arguments to and fro that he is a king of peace. He's the, he's the king of righteousness because he is known as that in the, in the text. But find him anywhere else. But Paul says this, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Abraham's there giving tithes to Melchizedek. It's a strange thing, you do that. A tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. Abideth the priest continually. Hmm, that's interesting. Without beginning, without end. Who could that be referring to? He likens him only, made like unto the Son of God. I don't want to get into an argument that Melchizedek was the Lord Jesus Christ. Personally, that's my conviction. I believe that he is. I believe that he is a, 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 a precursor or a forthcoming or a, or, a, or a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. A physical picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But where does he come from? He comes from, he comes from old. He comes from everlasting. That's where he comes from. Not the beginning of days nor end of life. This is where he comes from. And that's the characteristic of this individual spoken about, who is to be ruler in Israel. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now, you need to be aware also of something important, just as a side note. Very small If you have a modern translation, the light that's spoken about here in Scripture might dim a little bit. Because in modern translations, it's really difficult, a little bit difficult in some, not all, some, to know who this one is. The NIV and the RSV have a similar rendering where they say, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Whose origins? Whose origins? Hang on, if he had neither beginning of days nor end of life, did he have an origin? Can you have an origin if you have no beginning of days nor end of life? You cannot have an origin. Right? It's not from ancient times, it's from everlasting. Not from ancient days, it's from everlasting. So you've got a little bit of a confusion there. In the Good News Bible it says, The Lord says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are the one of the smallest towns in Judah. But out of you I will bring a ruler for Israel, whose family line goes back to ancient times. exactly a word-for-word translation. And you've got the New Living Translation. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Yeah. Here we have, here we have the, the, the Bible of what is known today as the Pentecostal or the Charismatic Movement. It's called the Message Translation. Um, this is what the Message says. But you, Bethlehem, David's country, the runt of the litter, from you will come the leader who will be shepherd rule, who will shepherd rule Israel. He will be no upstart, no pretender. His family tree is ancient and distinguished. There's a tremendous difficulty with these translations. A tremendous difficulty because you lose Christ. You lose Christ. You lose those appellations of who the Lord is. You lose them. They're gone. 
And if they're not gone, they're diminished to the point where they're barely visible. Barely visible. Now, some don't do a bad job with the passage, but some clearly, clearly obscure it. Be careful. Be careful when it comes to those. When we think of Christmas and the time that we enjoy reflecting upon the coming of Christ, it's worth recalling all those things concerning him that were spoken of and written of in a book so long ago. And when he comes, we will know who he is. And this is what they're looking for. They're looking for a knowledge of who Christ is. Because understand, we're looking at it from an Old Testament perspective. So imagine yourself at the moment, you are living in basically... Um, day dot for Judah. So you're living at the time that Christ will come. You're looking for it. You're looking for Christ. There's a reason that you're looking for Christ. Because there is a foretelling of the exact day that he will come and that he will make an appearance. He will reveal himself as king. That's my last point. Let's turn to it. It's in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. One of the major prophets, he's after, um, after a book of, where is he? Yeah, he's after Ezekiel. And if you've moved into Hosea and Obadiah and the smaller prophets, you've missed it. Go back a little bit. Daniel chapter 9, this is a famous passage in the Bible. Very, very famous passage in the Bible. Because it speaks about something so important. Because it gives us the timing. Hey, wouldn't it be grouse? Imagine knowing this. Imagine knowing you're given a starting point, right? Imagine being given a starting point, right? From this starting point, you can count the days right up until the time the Messiah will make an appearance. Do you think that if you knew the starting point, if you were at that time, you could forecast it and write about it? Do you think? Let's say you know the day Halley's Comet is going to crash into the Earth. Let's say the scientists can actually predict it with exactitude, within hours of when that's going to... Do you think you'd be interested? You'd prepare yourself a little bit better, wouldn't you? Right? You would know, okay? Now, they could forecast that years out, okay? Imagine having the starting point and then being able to count from there, especially if you're given the time frame. That's what we have here. Verse 24 in chapter 9. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. This is the angel, Gabriel, that has now come to Daniel. You'll recognise that if you read beforehand. He's come in Daniel 9, chapter 24. Okay, so this is Gabriel who has now come and he is giving Daniel the vision. And he's explaining the vision. And he says this. He says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troubled times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. What an incredible thing that's happening here. Now, I can't do justice to this passage in one point. Right? I can't. So I'm only going to be bringing out a couple of things that I want you to see. Number one, that there is a time frame given. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. I'll explain that to you in a moment. Number two, that there is a purpose presented to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks in total, right? That is actually speaking about the end of time. Speaking about the end of time. But there is a point to be identified first, the starting point. 
The starting point is, therefore, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. And I'll explain that in a second. Just be patient with me. Fourth point is that an event is to be witnessed. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Cut off means he's going to be killed. He's going to be killed. Okay. Now, so hang on a second. 70 weeks until the end of time to bring in everlasting righteousness. Is it now, you reckon? Do you reckon we're living in a time of everlasting righteousness? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Might be just me, but I can't see it. So I think that's referring to the end of time, right? But then he says, three score and two weeks, and seven weeks shall be his appearance. And after the three score and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Okay. The weeks are not our normal weeks, as we see it. You know, like seven days to a week. Weeks refer to, they are groups of sevens. Okay. So when it says 70 weeks, it's saying 70 sevens. 70 sevens. You got that? Okay, 77. Now, the problem is we need to work out what that time frame of weeks is referring to. The context bears it out for us, and it's referring to weeks of years. Weeks of years. Okay? So, what we have here is... You know, in, in, um, in Genesis, Jacob has got a job to do, doesn't he? He is... He, he's looking for a wife. Who is he looking for? Who did he want as a wife? Anybody remember? Rachel, remember? Okay, so how long did he promise that he was going to work for Laban for? And Laban says to him, fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. Okay, that's the week. That's the week. And it's the same week that we have here. So what's our, what's our calculation? So we've got seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Three score simply means three multiplied by 20. Right? This is the Elizabethan way of writing it. I don't particularly understand why they have it that way, but they've kept it there. <coughs> it's a poetic way of, refer- no, of referring to it. So, seven weeks and three score in two weeks. Three score in two, so three score, that's three times 20, means 60. Three score and two means 62 plus seven. So 62 plus seven is 69 weeks. But with 69 weeks of years, so it's 69 times 7, so it's 69 groups of 7, 483 years, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. Now, think for a second. If the years are identified, how many days are in our We know that, yeah? Okay, so if we were calculating years, do you think you could calculate how many days? Because he's in for a specific point, okay? So the years have days within them, so you can calculate the days. So they would have calculated those days. They would have known the day of his coming. Would you have anticipated his coming? Would you have had that figure recorded within your mind? Especially when you know the time, you know exactly when the commandment to restore it to build Jerusalem came. We know when it came. It came exactly 70 years after the beginning of the captivity because Jeremiah says they'll be in captivity for seven years. We also know who it was that gave the command and it was King Cyrus. How do we know that? Because he's mentioned in four books. He's mentioned in Second Chronicles, Ezra, Isaiah and Daniel. And it was Cyrus who was given the charge for just such a task and it happened exactly 70 years after the captivity began. So Cyrus gives the commandment. You can then calculate it straight through would you, should you have lived at the time where this prophecy might be fulfilled, the exact year, and it was in your lifetime, would you have waited for him in anticipation? Would you have waited for him? Would you have, would you have been there on the streets? And would you have said, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord? Would you have been one of those people in the crowd? Because they did say that, remember? They did say that. Now, this was the one that, would, that God said would destroy the devil. We see that. He's going to restore creation. This was promised at the very beginning of creation, at the very beginning of the fall of man. This is he who should come. This is Shiloh. This is the Messiah, the Prince. 
This is, this is he. He is the seed. And this is the one who would rule and govern his kingdom over his people. This is the one who is from eternally past. God ruling and sitting upon his throne. This is the one who will finish the transgression and make an end of sins and make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. Hey, curiously, have you wondered why Jesus actually said to his disciples who constantly wanted to make him king by the time he's not yet come? And he would slip through the hands of all the people who loved all the things that he was actually doing and teaching and also healing. And they would take him and they would make him king, but the Bible says, but he slipped away. He slipped away from them. Why? Because his time had not yet come. How many times did that actually happen in the New Testament that Jesus says, no, no, my time has not yet come. Do you get the impression that Jesus was looking for a specific time? Then when the time had come, not only did he... um, He encouraged the event. He set up the entire process. Go into such a place and you'll find an ass tied with a colt. Grab them. And if they say that you're losing the colt, say my master has need of him and bring them here. So he's organising the exact event that he would now ride upon the ass, the foal of an ass, and make his presence known as king. This is that event that we speak about that they said blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord turn to Luke chapter 19 this is the last passage we'll go into this morning Luke chapter 19 Verses 37. 1937. It says, And when he was come, nine, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, Even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now are they hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Why? Why did these things happen? Why did these things happen to these people? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Why are these things now hid from their eyes? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Why did Israel's enemies come upon Jerusalem and lay siege to them, where they starved the inhabitants with hunger and thirst? Why did that happen? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Why was the city decimated in 70 AD? Why did that happen? Why did Titus Vespasian come upon the city with four legions of Roman soldiers and its buildings left without one single stone upon another, just as Jesus had prophesied, just as Jesus told his disciples? Why did this happen with a loss A historic loss estimated at one and a half million people lost their lives in this event. Why did it happen? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And why were the Jewish people scattered? Think of this. Because it happened from this point. Think of this. Why were the Jewish people scattered among all the nations of the world, separated from their city for the better part of 1900 years why did that happen because 
thou hast not known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. Are you missing him? Are you missing him? You haven't seen him. You've missed his coming. You've missed this visitation. What's happened here? The question is, are you going to be lost forever because you would ignore even you and this, your day? The things that belong to your peace? Today I've made the smallest imprint, smallest imprint respecting the volume of the book written of Christ. It's just a small one, and yet it speaks loud and clear concerning all that was spoken of his coming. Missing it or ignoring it, ignoring what you've heard, might seem to have consequences disproportionate to your neglect. You think of all these things that actually happened to Israel? All these things happened upon them. Why? Because they missed that day. I'm not talking about, you know, Boxing Day and sales, you know, that are going to come again. We're not talking about missing out on watching a television program, you know, because it's not going to come back again. We're not talking about anything superficial like that. We're talking about missing the day that Christ came, that which was prophesied from ancient times, that was prophesied to the day that Daniel gave. And Christ held them accountable to know that day. But is it disproportionate to your thing? You think it's disproportionate? They missed that day and therefore they were completely destroyed, therefore all these things happened, therefore they were scattered for 1900 years. A bit disproportionate? Do you think not looking both ways when you cross the street is disproportionate to the event that would occur to you? Interesting, isn't it? You neglect to do the smallest thing. And there are catastrophic consequences. Even that which would take your own life. Israel's history shows otherwise. Too long not looking for Christ, the Saviour. This is what we should be doing. And if you don't know Christ, this is what you should be doing. Don't miss him. From the very time man rebelled against God, there was a solution given, a victory established God didn't wait for man to wallow in self-pity. He gave them the answer right there and then. This Christmas is this opportunity where you can share that light with someone. You know, Share with them the wonderful knowledge of Christ. Share with them the hope of Christ. Oh, what a joy it would be to lighten their day. You know? What, will they rebuke you? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. It's a time of year that we can do so freely. Do you know what the reason for the season is? We've heard those those little phrases. Share with people the wonder wonder of Jesus Christ. Share with the love of Christ. Care enough to lighten their path with the light God gave in the beginning. There is an answer to the problem of mankind today. And it's not found in a political leader. It's not found in some future event that man is going to be putting together. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's exciting. And he's worth sharing. Let's pray. Father, give you thanks, dear Lord. For those things of old, dear Father, that were written in a book. A book that we still have today, that we can return to, that we can reflect upon. A book, dear Lord, that we can rejoice in and know. I give you praise, dear Father, and thanks for this wonderful word. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would continue to bless us. Help us grow and help us know you and to know your word. I pray, dear Father, for your work within our lives and that you would lighten our own path. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen.